0: Every writer has been there. Deadline looming, clock ticking, total block. Meet Arabella, the protagonist of I May Destroy You. Sick of staring at a blank page, she escapes for a quick drink with friends. What harm could it do until someone slips something into her glass? So where you get
1: that? I just wanted to know, how, how did Last Night End?
0: I've got this thing
1: in my head. Of, like, this guy... Because now you're, you're calling it something
0: that I never heard. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy and my guest is Michaela Cole, writer and star of I May Destroy You on BBC and HBO. It follows Arabella, a young British Ghanaian writer in London, as she tries to put together what happened that night. And it tumbles into a frank exploration of sexual consent, part who done it, part hangout sitcom, part psychodrama. As an actress... Cole has ranged widely, from Black Earth Rising about the Rwandan genocide to Black Mirror and Star Wars The Last Jedi. But she made her name with Chewing Gum, a colourful sitcom inspired by her youth on an East London estate grappling with the twin obsessions of sex and religion for which she won two BAFTA awards. It was while writing the second season of Chewing Gum that Cole took a break from her laptop for a drink with a friend, only to find herself drugged and sexually assaulted by strangers. Arabella's story is also her story. According to the Centers for Disease Control in the US and the Office of National Statistics in Britain, nearly one in five women have experienced sexual violence. The official numbers are estimates because most cases go unreported. Victims too ashamed or afraid to speak. So almost three years after Me Too declared, time's up, we're asking, why is it still so hard to talk about sexual consent? Michaela Cole, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello, Anne. Nice to meet you. So I May Destroy You carefully avoids telling us who whom. And the question of destruction and and teasing the audience... I mean to some extent it seems like a a modern revenge tragedy and part of a genre that is bringing the revenge tragedy from Jacobean times I suppose up to the generation that you're describing in the 2000s.
1: That's interesting. I've actually never never really heard it um described as a revenge tragedy. I think um what I'm exploring is what happens to uh the victim or survivor of of such an assault when the person isn't there to take revenge upon and how the trauma affects her and and the other characters in, in the show psychologically.
0: And the story does stem from your own experience of serious sexual assault, something that might have caused a lot of people to shut down, which is initially what we see played out into various characters in your story. But why did you feel compelled not just to write about it, but to explore the questions that spring from it around consent from high school to millennial hookup culture.
1: I do tend to write from my own experiences. I was a poet before and I would write about being human and self-worth and all these sorts of things. I was aware that many people were going through similar things and the more I wrote, the more I asked questions and realized that um, I wasn't alone I do tend to broaden it out because I find that there's a broader issue with sexual consent, and it somehow kind of goes into exploitation I guess and tribalism and what we do when we feel threatened and how it affects our identity so I began to just enjoy seeing where there were connections and, and parallels
0: And there was a line that that struck me when one of your characters, Terry, says to to Bella, the main character, spending all your free time returning to the scene of the crime. Is that healthy? And uh, Did writing this help you to process an experience, which is fundamentally damaging to, to anyone's mental health? Or did you have to do your own healing before you could start to dramatise it?
1: I think it's a bit of both you know I went into therapy very quickly after I was sexually assaulted it was within days but uh, I, I definitely didn't reach a point where I was suddenly better enough to begin writing about it I don't know if recovery works like that and I love that line because I think from Terry's perspective What Arabella is doing is unhealthy and she's scared of it. And that's partly because Terry doesn't know how to process her own pain and doesn't like returning to the scenes of crimes where she um, may find that she has um, part responsibility, as we know uh, at that phase. From the perspective of some people, what Arabella is doing does seem uh, unhealthy and scary and dangerous. And I think a lot of people may have thought the same for me whilst I was writing but actually, um, you know, if you are alive to reflect on a dark time and to keep returning there, it means you've survived it and you can keep going there until you've got what you need from, from returning. I think that's what she's doing and I think that's what I do and I'm doing with this show.
0: You also bring in a comedic element and it, it's shot through even the darkest moments. Why is it so important for you to find comedy even there
1: yeah you know I, that's not so much something I'm deliberately ensuring I do it just seems to be there I describe um the humor in this show and, and really in life as an uninvited guest at a party you know you wanted a, a, a an event that was about mourning and recovery and empowerment and then there's just somebody in the corner with a cocktail making the most absurd jokes and sort of uh, analyzing your pain from a very a very um, absurd perspective but that's it's just always there Um, from the very beginning when I was in the police station very much like Arabella in episode two suddenly realizing that my life was really about to change forever my friend was with me looking after me and as we waited for the detective and I looked to him For a shoulder to cry on, I noticed he was playing Pokemon Go on his phone. And uh, it's that juxtaposition that I didn't have a word for that feeling when you're experiencing this whilst your friend plays Pokemon Go. And that sort of became the tone for the rest of my thoughts and the rest of the show itself.
0: And there's also a a scene later as we go along, which is really about the issue of male consent and homosexual rape, where the, the policeman, who he essentially is kind of trying to do the right thing, but in a very English way, simply cannot get the words to come together to tell this traumatised young man what, even what he'd like him to do in terms of the paperwork. And I thought that was extremely well observed, that you have that gap between the good intention, the process and what's actually happening.
1: Yes, and one of the things I was always very cautious of when I worked with um, those two um, brilliant actors, Khadif Cohen and um, Papa Essie was that Khadif, the man playing Officer Tom, should always remember that he's trying to do his best. So don't judge the officer when you play him. Be an officer who is really trying to do their best. And then we decide, as an audience, what does that really look like? Is it really enough? I also um, really wanted to explore the, the different ways that the police handle assault when the victim is a woman and, and how they process that when the victim is a man.
0: Yes, I thought that was very striking, particularly at a time when there is a whole argument about policing on both sides of the Atlantic, but sometimes the nuances can get lost and the sort of acceptance and understanding of what the characters on the police side would seem to be so much more open to it when it was Arabella's case and at a loss when it was a male-on-male assault. And I wondered if that was something you'd you'd come across in your research or has it just struck you that that was the way things were likely to be? It's something I came
1: across in my research. Uh, I was very lucky to have a story consultant for Kwame's story who told me about his experience and um, that was, uh, sadly, his experience.
0: Yeah. And Arabella is shocked to find that a partner who removes their condom during sex without her consent, that that is classed as, as rape by the police. And, and a lot of the interesting borderlines that you describe here and, and bring to the fore are around problems of ignorance when it comes to what constitutes sexual crime is that something that you have felt that we as societies even people who would think of themselves as being broadly enlightened want to look away from not sure what the classification is if you like
1: perhaps you're right perhaps we don't like looking at these things and perhaps it's because it might make us look at ourselves in a way that um we don't quite want to i saw a the stealth thing, which is when you, a man secretly takes off the condom during sex, on the BBC News. Just, <laughs> I was painting my toenails and it came up on the news. And I was like, wait, what? It's rape. And then you suddenly go back in your life. And I think a lot of people are doing that. They're, they're suddenly realising that events that they may have dismissed, uh, maybe they feel differently. And, and I think there's, you know, maybe something to say about... Um, delusion and disassociation not processing situations the way we we should gaslighting is one of those terms when we should react in a particular way but very quickly that um that process of working our way towards being angry or upset or feeling like an injustice has been done is robbed by someone placating and gaslighting happens
0: it's interesting that so long after the Me Too movement began and so much has been revealed around consent and environments in which the whole borderline of consent seems to have just not not really been important at all. And we can, can see perhaps that playing out a bit in uh, the end of the Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell case that's going on at the moment after her arrest. Why is it so hard, do you think, for us to talk to and grapple with consent at a time when we're pretty much like to think compared to previous generations we're so open about sex?
1: Oh, I feel like we are beginning to um, talk more about these things, aren't we? I think the Me Too movement definitely made speaking about this in terms of people in the Hollywood industry much easier and may have given people some um, confidence and and bravery to be open about these things. I just think, I don't know, before all the the transparency and the amount of exposing people were able to do with things like Twitter, it just seemed very easy for people to get away with things, powerful people. I think people in power seemed to be really held accountable. I'm thinking of Jimmy Savile as well. And I, I really don't, understand it but all i all i can say is that it seems really great that um these things are slowly being exposed
0: that may be really great but let me put a bit of a, a flip side which i thought came up in one episode which made me pause for, for thought and that's where arabella publicly shames Zane. For the, the, rape, the the condom removing incident and that struck me as an, a bit like a, a parody of the me too takedown that we often see happening that social media outrage cycle there are victims and there are perpetrators yes but there is a case where we had actually seen what had happened but if we haven't then how do we give anyone the benefit of the doubt Does that concern you, particularly as you deal a lot with the impact of social media?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, for all of the positives, there are some really interesting consequences, aren't there? And uh, I think, yes, there is the question of whether we should believe her or not. I think in, in this case, obviously, we do because we saw it. But also what happens to Arabella now after she breaks the Internet and goes home? How does she sleep at night? And what is the aftercare for the person who is uh, riding on the horse of, of vengeance and justice? And uh, how do they recover? I think this does really interest me. I think our, our desire for bloodshed it is interesting. And I'm not saying it, it isn't warranted. I just think we also mm-hmm. need to look at how it affects us and how we deal with these matters how we find calm and peace so that we can sleep. I, I sometimes wonder how we're doing when it comes to like sleep, whilst we search for justice and whilst we feel the, the pain and the outrage and whilst we rightly express our anger, because it should be expressed, but it, eventually we're gonna have to figure out a way to sleep, which is something that I'm trying to explore over these 12 episodes with Arabella. Which
0: we will find out about in due course. <laughs> This might be a bit of a parental perspective, but I have a teenage daughter and I thought, as I was watching it, some people watching it might think, if you look at those scenes, for instance, when they're in Italy, the drink, the drugs, the hard partying. One of them might think about their own lives, but they might also think, what do they tell their kids? And if you live your life in such a high-risk way, you will be more vulnerable to certain dangers. And the drug dealer uh, tells Bella, you should have watched your drink, and she gets Cross with him, along the lines of, it's not really my job to watch my drink, it's other people's job not to spike my drink. But at the same time, as you get older, you do reflect on that balance of risk and reward. And how do you think that was playing out there for your characters? I
1: think it's a very hard concept for her to engage with. It doesn't sound right, does it? If somebody says, you should have watched your drink, but if you whisper to yourself, at some point during your healing if I had watched my drink, this wouldn't have happened. Perhaps it doesn't sound so scary. It's just a fact. The fact is, if you were watching your drink, you would have seen somebody put some things in it. However, do any of us watch our drinks constantly? Do we make sure we see the barman at all times when he pours the drink? We don't. When you start looking at that fact, you see a very grey area where it involves perhaps... um, this word that's become very taboo around this subject. And I understand why it's taboo. It's going to get everybody's backs up when the word comes out. It's a scary word, responsibility. And it doesn't mean that Arabella is responsible for what happened to her, but she can find within that scene of when her drink was spiked, she can find herself um, not being powerless. When you dare to face that, For me personally, I gained some sort of um, power. I don't know why, but when I allowed myself to just look and go, and there was the minute when perhaps I was looking somewhere else. For a second it could have been, and that's when it happened. It doesn't place any blame on me, but to shield me, to shield Arabella, to shield anyone from that moment is to keep somebody as an infant. You're making them only see it, from a two-dimensional view where there is a victim and a criminal and the criminal did everything and you did nothing. Everything happened to you. But that is such a powerless way of seeing life. And I don't know how much we can grow and how much we can find our power if we're
0: only seeing things that way. And when you talk about that power relationship, do you think the drama should provoke action in those who watch? And someone described watching what you do is is feeling that you were triggering the audience they felt was that they were being triggered into certain responses or changes in the way that they saw things Would would you welcome that? Is is that part of what you would aim to do with this sort of work well I've always been even with chewing
1: gum which was you know an out and out comedy I I, I do like to stir people you know I think In discomfort, we grow, growing pains, you know. I like to bring um, discomfort, but I don't like to leave us in discomfort. The only thing I plead is that we carry on till the end, to watch till episode 12 for the full gift. Don't don't drop off, or you will just be left traumatised. Stay with me.
0: (laughs) You're often compared to writers or dramatists like Sally Rooney, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Lena Dunham in the US, but they're often taking on power relationships, female sexuality and ambition, with protagonists who are overwhelmingly white and sometimes come in for some criticism on that score. What was your own take on representation of decent, engaging, gritty, quality roles for black women on television? You seem to have decided that probably the best way around it is to write them yourself.
1: Yes. And at the same time, you know, I've been very lucky and I think I've been an exception to the rule in the fact that um, I played Kate Ashby in Black Earth Rising. Very lucky to have been around at a time when Hugo Blick was making such work. But it's an exception to the rule, I think. I've loved writing these roles. Uh, I've loved writing roles for people of all different ethnic backgrounds, and there should be more. I think there there could be more, and, and maybe now I'm, I read recently that the BBC have pledged a bunch of money to BAME work, and hopefully there will be more.
0: Uh, Sandra oh, O plays Eve in Killing Eve, of course. Recently, she said that she felt the UK was behind the US on diversity, especially in those backstage and, and production roles. Has that also been your experience?
1: Yes, and it, I was you know until I did my show, which was um, very very diverse on the crew, and we would often look around at each other and, and just be quite astonished. I would watch the crew just going, this is really weird because there's a lot of variety and diversity on the set. It is a problem. It's an issue that over my career I've raised and I've seen the discomforts it can cause production teams because it, it doesn't seem to be a, a something that anybody's thinking of until somebody is complaining about it. We are behind, but, but look, I, I really do have hope that show by show we're going to realise that it's not acceptable and we'll catch up with America at some point.
0: You've talked a lot about your own experience at drama school. That was at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London where you were the first black woman they'd admitted in five years. And I have to say, I was really very shocked by that because I I know the Guildhall a a bit. I've had uh, offspring there, not not in quite such a prestigious role, but in in the junior end of, of what it does. And it made me wonder whether... Liberal arts institutions often think they couldn't be the ones who are perpetuating a systematic, subconscious or unconscious racist selection of people they're taking, or they're simply saying we can't access the right kind of, of talent. What would you say to that?
1: I think you're completely right. I think that uh, these schools and, and the, the teachers really have no idea how complicit they are in the the racial inequality and actually the, the trauma that the black students or uh, students of Asian origin have when on the off chance they do get in. And I don't know how to envision a future when I meet students who are there now who say, no, it's, it's great now. And I, I think it might be to do with uh, maybe diversifying the teachers. I think that um, everybody who teaches are essentially kind of middle upper class white people in their 50s to 70s and I think that's great but I think diversity would be even better
0: what was it it if, if you could put your finger on it for our audience what what was it that you felt was so wrong about the way you were treated was it the expectations of the roles you'd want or wouldn't want was it about the way you were expected to present yourself in relation to other students just flesh that out for me a bit if you could
1: I think being called the N-word in front of all the students in the middle of a a class exercise where you're simply just walking around in a space might answer your your question. It's not okay, is it?
0: No, no, it doesn't sound like it's remotely okay. It sounds
1: absolutely insane. (laughs) And I meet student after student from different years who tell me the same story.
0: What's that actually about? Is that use of the word intended to be part of a... Theatrical practice that you felt overstepped the line, or was the word being used in a hostile way? Um,
1: It was, uh, Oi, N word, what have you got for me? Which had no relation to, we were just walking around in the space. I mean, it was astonishing for the entire year because we don't know, we don't know why it happened.
0: Also, um, was it a member, a teaching member? It was a student who said that. It's a teacher. And did you ever say who it was? No. Would you now? No.
1: Um, no, because, because uh, it seems... I don't know. Why wouldn't I say who it was? Why wouldn't I say who it was? It's almost as if I I need to have uh, all my clarity on why on earth it happened and where they're coming from before I... Throw them under the bus and and end their in, the entire career. I I would love to know. Perhaps I'm I need to have a conversation with that teacher and also because there there were many different teachers that did that. Uh, I've heard from other students. Well, this teacher said it to me. This teacher locked me in a room and just shouted it at me uh, quite a few times. So I, I I I don't know. What does saying one person's name do, especially when you don't have a full transparency on on why it happened.
0: Mm. Thank you for answering that. Um, What has it been like releasing the show at this time serendipitously in the, the, the sense that there's a lot of focus on gender and sexual politics and on racism and against the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter movement and protests around the world? How did that timing feel to you?
1: I mean, uh. Surreal, overwhelming, unfortunate, but also w- what a perfect time. But it's so unfortunate that this time is happening. Um, I must also just go back as you were asking me that question, I was thinking about Guildhall. And mm. the sad dichotomy is that, you know, over those three years, I think I experienced discomfort and I grew a lot. I had a lot of pain from growing. And there's a part of me uh, that is aware my time in drama school kind of uh, prepared me for the world outside of it. The world outside of drama school isn't great. You know, I've experienced physical Mm -hmm. racist attacks whilst being in Bulgaria shooting for television shows. I've had stones thrown at me by drunken men whilst on my way home with uh, shopping bags in my hand coming back from the supermarket. I've had so many experiences that mean I'm sadly unsurprised, but it also means I entered the world after drama school, understanding that this is a very strange and awful place a lot of the time if you are Black. But also I've had brilliant experiences. I learned to live in my body. I learned to be soft in my movements. I learned yoga. I learned Kong, I learned to bond with people who were from all all parts of the UK. And actually we had a student from Italy as well. I learned these things and I wouldn't have learned them had I not gone to a drama school like that. So it can be tricky because I'm also grateful for
0: what I I learned. I read that you wrote almost 200 drafts of I May Destroy You. Which may be the lesson that you you leave aspiring writers with—that this is what it takes. How did that process change you uh, as as a writer? And where where do you get the the Or is it maybe the caffeine or whatever it takes to keep going through <laughs> <It's> 191 drafts? <laughs> You're speaking to yes. a columnist and broadcaster. I thought you know, like five or six is good, right? Did my world. <laughs> well, I
1: mean, really, what if it's a 12-episode series where they're all half an hour and, you know, you're talking about such huge, huge topics. And, you know, for me, it's like, I was told this actually by somebody when I was making Chewing Gum, which is you need to shoot like it's your last shot. So I am willing to do whatever I have to do to get this show to a place where it might be just about understood. My process is messy, and so Hugo Blick will plan for two years and write one draft and shoot it. I don't really plan <laughs> at all. So I think I write and then I begin to plan as I'm drafting. As I draft, I see a shape that begins to emerge from the mess of these um, thoughtlessly put down, I call them vomit drafts, 12 containers of vomit that I put in front of my co And together we sit down and we try and figure out what I might be talking about. It does require a lot of redrafting. It requires me becoming exhausted. And I often find myself in a trance. And after 30 hours, I look around and try to remember what room I'm in what town I'm in. I get up and I practice walking. Why haven't I felt the urge to pee for 30 hours? I am probably sending myself close to madness. uh, But I find my way back through the drafts. The drafts give me clarity. And this process becomes very spiritual and emotional and uh, exhausting. And I like it.
0: Vomit draft is surely the word that you've just added to the Oxford English Dictionary the vomit <laughs> draft is essential what would be in the next draft having been so deeply invested in revisiting aspects of your own life and drawing out extraordinary drama from them what where, where did it take you
1: next oh isn't that now that is now the question isn't it I'm on a break right now and I'm seeing my family and friends and seeing my mum loads that's where I am right now
0: and uh I will wait for a story to find me. And 300 drafts to go. and not going to let you go without... Could you give us the secret of the perfect yoga crow, oh. which I found completely transfixing when you held it well yes. <laughs> in dialogue with another character at the same time? Uh, yes, I, I was
1: told to... Make sure I'm lifting my feet as high as possible, almost like a child's pose. Your feet are very close to your bum. And to look straight ahead, to look out. Don't look down, just look out.
0: Michaela Cole, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Anne. And as ever, we'd love to know what you think. Why is it so difficult to talk about sexual consent And are there still grey areas? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our journalism, do subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer for the best offer wherever you are. You'll find the link in the show notes. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.